You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. About 23 years ago, a man named Chuck Nolan was working for a major delivery company. He was a man who lived by the clock, obsessed with so much of his work, he had to methodically come up with time in order to be with his girlfriend. He traveled the world and was always very busy, demanding greater efficiency from his fellow employees. However, that Christmas, while en route to Malaysia, his plane crashed into the Pacific Ocean. He was the sole survivor, and he survived by washing up on shore of an undiscovered island. For the next four years, he lived there without another human being, Though he adapted to surviving on the island, there was no greater purpose to his life than to just breathe and survive. He was going to live and die there alone on that island. But one day something happened. A large piece of plastic washed up upon the island, and then he had an idea. He decided to fashion that plastic into a sail for a boat so that he could get past the current and tide that would keep him on the island. But it was a dangerous attempt because he knew it was likely that he could die on the ocean. But he reasoned, I'd rather risk my life dying on that ocean than knowingly die here on this island without any purpose than to just pass here. He completed his raft. He got off the island, lost his volleyball named Wilson, (laughs) and he made it home. When his friends and family saw him, they couldn't believe their eyes. Chuck, we thought you were dead. How did you survive so long on the island for four years? He answered, when I washed upon that shore, so many did also the packages that were on the flight that we were delivering. I opened them all, except for one. It had golden wings on it, and I decided that one day I would return that package. He finally delivered that package, never knowing what was in it, but he left a letter on it, on it that said, this package saved my life. Thank you. The story I'm telling you is an abridgment of the 2000 hit Cast Away starring Tom Hanks. The movie was a massive hit at the time and no wonder that it was because it was dealing with a number of different and important themes in life. One of them being which, what is life without purpose? And what is the reason for it? If something as simple as being able to deliver a package to someone is what helped save Chuck Noland, a.k.a. Tom Hanks' life, while on that island. How much more is it that when the world tells us that there is no real objective meaning to us today, that we need some sort of purpose? All of us, to, all of us at one time have likely felt adrift in the world feeling empty and thinking life was purposeless, meaningless, with no aim, no hope. I know such a feeling and how depressing and how wholly unbearable something like that is. However, today is the 1st of January, 2023, and maybe some of you are looking for some sort of new purpose in life to help you guide you through this year. But really, is there such a thing in life? Is there something that we can do? Is there a FedEx package for all of us that has golden wings? The good news to these questions are, for the Christian, it is a resounding yes. There is a God who is there, and he is not silent. For if there is a God, then we have purpose in knowing him and being in a love relationship with him for all of eternity. And yet for the present moment, he's also given us something of infinite value and importance to do. It is to engage the world by sharing his good news with the world, that being the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done to reconcile us to God. 
We all get to be these, this great FedEx courier and to give this package with golden wings to a very lost world. It's the Great Commission, and he's commanded his disciples, all of us, to make disciples of all nations. Now, very quickly, let me just read you the passage again. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Now, it's incredible that four short verses can contain so much in them. There's a lot to unpack, but I'm going to summarize it for all of you like this. We are called to be disciples who make disciples. And what this passage is going to show us is that it's going to give us the reason we are called to be a disciple who make disciples, the what disciples making disciples looks like, and how we can handle the pressure of being a disciple who makes a disciple. First, the reason. In our world today, there are many different voices that are trying to get authority or trying to give us reasons for doing what it is that we're doing, things that we need to believe, ways we need to behave. Just turn on your TV, just turn on your social news feed, and if you're old, get a radio. <laughs> you know, just, just turn it on and just adjust it a little bit. There might be a little static, but you'll find something. And everyone is speaking nowadays and trying to tell us what to think and to what to believe. But how often do we hear about these experts and many of them turn out to be incorrect? How do we know who has the right authority? In what way do these people actually have the right to speak? Imagine for a moment a little boy playing baseball. He gets up to, this, he gets up to, the, gets up to the plate and then all of a sudden his father from the stand says, it's gonna be a curveball. Anticipate that. But then the coach says, no, it's going to be a fastball, listen to me. If you were that kid in that situation, whom would you listen to? And you know you want to be respectful to both, but it's kind of hard. Do you listen to your father or do you listen to the coach? I would argue that, contextually speaking, in that moment, you would want to listen to your coach because he is the one who has been training you. He is the one who is in the game with you at that moment. Mm-hmm. So when there is a conflict of authority, we have to try to say to ourselves, who is the one who has the right to speak into this situation? And I think when we read these verses, we are realizing what in the world our authority is. Now, the first thing we might gravitate to it is to say, well, Jesus is saying all authority rests on him. But saying one has authority just because one has authority is kind of circular. There's no real grounding for it. But that's not how Gra Matthew grounds Jesus' claim to authority. The entire chapter of Matthew 28, and I would encourage all of you to read this to just check me on this, is Matthew's attempt to demonstrate that it's in the resurrection that Jesus' claims to authority, to his claims to divinity, are, uh, are realized, that he is the one who's vindicated in all the claims that he has. Well, let me demonstrate. If you read the whole chapter, you'll see the disciples of Jesus are hiding from Rome, from the Jewish leaders. It's the women who at the time give their testimony, in, who at the time in court were culturally considered unreliable. And the story about a guards at the tomb who became afraid were paid off. And then Matthew claimed that this story about, the Jesus, about Jesus's resurrection was being circulated still at the time of his composition. Why in the world would Matthew include all of these incredibly embarrassing 
details. If you were making up a religion, why would you ever include such details right here? Moreover, it gets even better. In verse 17, you'd be forgiven if you read this very quickly and you just passed by it, but it's actually really important. Notice here how it's written, that when they saw him, they worshiped him. Fascinating. Whom, do you, whom are you supposed to properly worship? I'll let you figure that out for a second. And then it said, but some doubted. Now again, if you were making up a religion, why would you include the fact that these men, who at first were afraid, and now see the guy in front of him, alive, with the nails in his hand, as proof that he did this, why would you say some doubted? Why would you say, you know, Jesus, I see you there. You have ha- I-, I saw you die, and you're here, but I'm not sure you... What's going on here? Why would you include such an embarrassing detail if this didn't actually take place? It seems like Matthew is trying to accurately report what he and the other disciples saw when they saw Jesus. When they saw him die on a Roman cross, when they saw him die as a convicted criminal. Why would you include such an embarrassing detail? Wouldn't you rather write... All the men never feared. They comforted the distraught women and were faithful to the end, believing in him when he said that he'd be raised again on the third day, and not one of us doubted. That's not what we see here. If you were making something up, if you were trying to impress everyone, that's what you would say, but we never see that. Instead, we get a brutally honest report from Matthew that shows this embarrassing detail of some of the disciples still questioning whether or not the man in front of them was someone that they could touch and see that they saw die three days ago was actually there. Now, part of the reason we trust the resurrection account took place in space-time history is because the testimony is composed in a way that is trying to be honest and report accurately what took place. Namely, that the disciples were cowards, they doubted, and the women were the first ones Jesus decided to reveal his glory to. Now, if the resurrection took place then everything, everything flows from that, including Jesus' authority. It's the resurrection that vindicates Jesus' claims about himself, as it is, it is he who now has God's divine stamp of approval about what Jesus has said and done about God. It's on account of the resurrection that in this very next verse, Jesus isn't just accused of having the world's biggest ego. Can you imagine if somebody went up to you and said, you know, I am the authority figure on just insert whatever field you want to add in there. And if you go against me, you're really going against that field. Well, you'd rightly assume the guy to be crazy, particularly if he's just getting everything wrong. You could safely dismiss him. But Jesus' authority is based on what he did and what other people saw. You don't want to die for what you know, willingly know is a lie. So now what? Okay, Jesus has authority and is based in his resurrection. Now what? Well, let's go to the next verse. Now, a lot of people, when we read this verse, we just see it as Jesus is making a lot of commands. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. But Greek is not English. Greek is very different, and the way that it's composed can be very different. The verb make disciples, believe it or not, is actually the primary verb of the entire sentence. It's where all the command is given. Verbs like go, baptize, teach are all describing the the form in how you're supposed to be making disciples. But what is a disciple? We hear that word all the time 
when you grow up in church, you just hear the word, and it's basically church lingo, and you never really know what it is. So let me give you the best definition that I can give you of what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who is a student who never stops learning. A disciple is a student who never stops learning. As a matter of fact, the root word, make disciple, for that verb, make disciple, in its noun form for the disciples is basically the same thing. It's basically the same word, but just in a noun form. Jesus is essentially saying, hey, you guys who've been following me around, who've been learning from me, who've been trying to, you know, do what I, as I've been doing, I want you to keep doing that, but now you're going to be teaching others about me. You're going to be baptizing them in the name of the, in the name that I share with the Father and Holy Spirit. This constant spiritual relationship you have with me is always with you and those with whom you disciple. In his book, Teaching to Change Lives, Dr. Howard Hendricks recalls a story about how a student came up to him after the student had been walking past his office at late at night, 10, 10, 30, 11. And he asked Dr. Hendricks, sir, I see you in your office late at night when you could be sleeping. Why are you poring over your books and papers constantly? I see it every night. And Dr. Hendricks thought carefully for a moment, and he replied, son, I'd much rather have my students drinking from a running stream than a stagnant pool. I'd much rather have my students drinking from a running stream than a stagnant pool. And Dr. Hendricks continued his own education so he could be a model, a uh, life model to those he was dis- he was discipling. He continued his walk with Jesus by growing in his knowledge of Christ and by sharing it constantly as being a flowing stream of knowledge for his students. Now, I'm just going to pause here for a very quick moment and ask you, just as a moment of personal reflection, which are you more like? Are you more of a running stream? Have you been more of a running stream? Or have you allowed yourself to become more like a stagnant pool? And that's okay, all of us hit some sort of rut in life, all of us hit some sort of moment where we're just thinking to ourselves, hey, I'm busy, life is busy, I just don't have the time to open my Bible, I just don't have the time to do something with the church, and you know what, it's okay. We all have those times, we all have those moments. But remember, Christ's command here is not something that is supposed to be burdensome, and it's not something that's supposed to make us feel guilty, it's supposed to be a reminder and a comfort of the fact that we can do this. Now let me tell you how we can actually go and handle this pressure of being a disciple who makes disciples. Life being full and busy, we can think to ourselves, there's a lot that I gotta do, there's a lot that I gotta take care of, and I have to be worried constantly about the results of it. I know all of us constantly think about that whenever we're doing some sort of work or any sort of just anything. But let me ask you, would it be a lot easier to do a job and enjoy the work, not needing to worry about the, re- the result? Yeah, I think that would be a lot easier. Well, when Jesus said that he is going to be with us, that can be our comfort. We are called to be obedient. We are called to be obedient to his command, and we are by no means supposed to take credit for when things go right, and we're not supposed to become distraught when things go wrong, because we trust in God for all of the results. Now, we just recently came through a time of Advent, and you can clearly see that we're still in love with our poster right here, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I love this Hebrew word, Emmanuel, quite literally, with us, God, or God with us. Now, Matthew 
is usually claimed as having to originally written this gospel in Hebrew or Aramaic, we're not entirely sure, but we have it in Greek. We know that it's in Greek, and we knew, we know that he knew Hebrew quite well, because when he starts his gospel, the angel announces that Jesus' name will be Emmanuel, God with us, and he writes, which means God with us. But he bookends his gospel with Jesus using pretty much exactly the same words. Jesus says, I am with you. So whatever gifts, whatever talents, whatever desires you have, whatever things you want to accomplish, whether it's being a disciple who makes disciple or anything else that you have going on in life, realize that it is not up to you what the result is going to be. Your job is to be obedient and to follow because Jesus is with you. And when we reflect on that, that should be enough. The God who was risen from the dead, the God who is with us, the God who knows you by name personally is with you. Now, trying to sum all of this up, having purpose in anything can get you through the most difficult of circumstances, the most unfortunate of circumstances. Chuck Nolan's package with the golden wings gave him a purpose to live on an island and face the Pacific Ocean. Can you imagine that? A little package. And in that narrative, he was able to come up with the courage to sail onto the Pacific Ocean. Do you have any idea how big that is? It's big. And see if he can maybe survive and get off the island and live. He delivered the package and he left a note that said, this saved my life. Thank you. And at the very end of the film, Chuck is at a crossroads. And he's just looking and he's just trying to figure out where he's going to go next. A car drives by and this rather fetching woman comes out of the car and she talks to Chuck for a moment and he says, well, where should I go? What's going on in all these directions? And she gives a few comments. Well, if you go that way, it's Kansas. If you go that way and that way, you'll hit that. But if you take my road, you'll see absolutely nothing there. You'll see nothing there. She gets in her car, drives away, and he sees the golden wings on her car. And he stops and contemplates what he's going to do. Now, you never see what happens, but I like to imagine that he got in his car, drove around, went back to her house. He told the story about how that package saved his life. In doing research for the sermon, I was looking into the film, and originally, the woman was delivering a package to her estranged husband who was in Russia, and he didn't want anything to do with her after that. But it was Chuck who wanted to deliver that package on return back to her. I'm sure she never saw that coming. And I'm sure he never thought that he was going to meet the person who essentially saved his life. As Christians, we too have been given a FedEx package with golden wings, but it is of far more value and is far more purposeful. We are tasked to let the world know, a dark world that is lost, that doesn't know its right hand from its left, to know that Jesus loves it, that, it died for, that he died for the world so that they can know what true love is and they can know what life is really all about and have purpose and meaning. Life's most deepest reward, meaning, comes from what we do for others. It only follows that there is no richer or deeper purpose in life than to disciple others, to let those know about the one who died for him, for, who died for them, and raised again 
for their justification. Let's all choose this year to be running streams and let the world know that the love of our God is great, that he loves them, he knows them, and that he loves you.